All right. Welcome back, college students. <laughs> and everybody else who uh, came back from the summer. It's good to see everybody. Um, we've been in Isaiah 61 for much of the summer, at least on my end. And just by way of review, Isaiah 61, in one word, is about what? Jubilee. What's Jubilee? Jubilee is this Old Testament concept that God instructed his people. It was part of the rhythm of their life that God wanted them to obey. Every 50 years was to be Jubilee, meaning the fields were to rest. And everybody was a farmer back then. So there was no sowing, there was no planting. There was no harvesting. The fields rested. The people rested. Number two, all slaves were set free. Number three, all debt canceled. Man, that one would get me excited. (laughs) And number four, what's number four? It's like hitting the reset button. Everyone got to return to what was originally theirs to their land, to, to the land that was given to their family. It was a do-over. And that's why this was good news to one specific group of people, slaves and the poor. And uh, as Isaiah 61 starts, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news, gospel to the poor. Now, today we have a treat because we've been looking at Isaiah 61 uh, much of this summer. You've been hearing what I have to say about it and things like that. Really not what I have to say. Hopefully it's what God has to say through me. Today we're going to look at Jesus and what he has to say about this text. So I want us to turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 4. I'm going to start reading at verse 14. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. And he was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, as was he, and on the Sabbath day, he went to the synagogue, as was his custom. Jesus stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of Jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the Hazan, the attendant, and he sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and were amazed at his gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked. And then Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, Heal yourself, and you'll tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard you do in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet, Elijah was not sent to any of them, but instead to a widow in Zarephath, in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. And they got up, and they drove him out of town, and they took him to the brow of a hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd, and he went on his way. 
This is God's word. You may be seated. Let me just start this morning with a little bit of background that I think is important. First, what is the significance of Galilee? See, place matters. These aren't just names, but when you see the name of, the, of a place in Scripture, you better ask why. Well, because of what the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 9, he says, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the the land of Naphtali. Nazareth is right in the heart of the land of Zebulun. But in the future, he will honor Galilee, the Galilee of the nations, By the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light, and those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. It's in Galilee where the light will shine again. God's Messiah will come. Now, Galilee, I don't know if you know this, is a much different place than Judea. Because Galileans were this later wave of returnees from Babylon and Different parts of the world where Jews were dispersed. They were people with this accent. They spoke with the brogue. They they created such towns as Nazareth and Canaan, Capernaum and Bethsaida and Kortzin. Towns that didn't exist in the Old Testament. And the Galileans were known to be fiery and passionate towards Torah. Now without oversimplifying, the difference between a Galilean... And a Judean is much like the difference, I think, between a Protestant and a Catholic. Because the Judeans were the old guard. They came back centuries before to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. This temple was their baby. And Jerusalem was its Vatican with all its priests and its temple sacrifices, its pomp, its circumstance. But the Galileans were kind of considered these rogue returnees. While they respected the temple, the priest, and the sacrifice, for them the centerpiece of life and of worship was the synagogue. Now what's a synagogue? Because think about it, no place in the Old Testament is synagogue mentioned, but now we get to our New Testament and we keep reading about synagogues. Now synagogue simply means to gather. Because synagogue was a gathering of God's people. It's God's people gathered around Torah. Now think about it. When they're exiled from the land, they no longer have a temple. So they're left asking, okay, now what? How are we going to worship God? And what they realized is they still had two things. They still had each other, and they still had the Torah. So then they saw texts like, to obey is better than sacrifice. So they thought to themselves, you know what, we can't sacrifice anymore in the the temple, but what we do have is Torah, and we can learn it so we can obey it. So in essence, learning and obeying Torah replaces the temple And Torah teachers and their Talmudim, or disciples, kind of replaced the priests and their sacrifices. And I'm going to tell you something. These Galileans, they burned for God's word. They burned for it. In fact, when we are living in Jerusalem, because this still exists today, one of our favorite things was every Friday night to to go up to uh, the Wailing Wall. Because Friday night is when Shabbat started for them. And the Wailing Wall, or the Western Wall, it was an open synagogue. I wish I could take you there right now. I wish you could see these 17, 18-year-old, 19-year-old, 20, 21-year-old men who are literally just dancing in the streets, celebrating arms around each other. I mean, the passion and the energy. And you know what was at the heart of it? 
God gave us his word. We have God's word. Now you hurt for them because they don't know Christ. But at the same time, you're inspired and you're left thinking, why don't we dance? Because we have God and his word. He's spoken to us. Where would you be today without this? Now think about it. What does it tell you that Jesus is a Galilean? And that 11 of his 12 disciples are Galileans. The only one who's not a Galilean is Judas. And you need to know that these guys had a passion for God's word. And now think about this. What part of that system does Jesus plug himself into? He doesn't come into that system and become a priest or a high priest in the temple. He is a Torah teacher with Talmudim with disciples. So look at verse 15. It says, He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. Of course they praised him. Not only is Jesus a Torah teacher, he's the best. Okay, and then look at verse 16. It says, he went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, as he, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. So here comes Jesus. He comes to Nazareth, his hometown. Now, does anyone know what Nazareth means? See, names are important in the Bible, too. What does Nazareth mean? Anyone know? Good. Someone's going to learn something today. Netzer is the word for branch. So Netzareth means city of the branch or branchville. Now you're just kind of left thinking, well, what's the significance of that? Well, this is taken right out of Isaiah 11. We're listening to what it says. This is one of those great messianic texts that comes from the prophet Isaiah. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, and from his roots, a netzer, a branch, will bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. That's Messiah to them the great rescuer who is to come. So, at a minimum, I think it's fair to say that Nazareth, this, this group of returnees from Babylon, they settle in this, in this little area and they call their, their city or town City of the Branch. We are descendants of David. And I think it's fair to say that they prided themselves on this and maybe they went even so far as to think that we're the ones through whom the branch is going to come. The Netzer is going to come from Netzareth. So imagine this, the excitement when they hear that Jesus, this guy who is healing, this guy who is teaching This guy who people are saying could be the Messiah. Think about their feeling when they hear he's coming to their synagogue. You think the synagogue was packed that day? Joseph's son is here. Now, notice verse 17. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to Jesus. And unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. I want you to know this, that the custom on Sabbath in synagogue is to read a long passage from Torah, first five books of the Bible, and then one from the half-Torah, a passage from the writings and the prophets. Now I want you to think about this. They have a Sabbath reading schedule that takes them through Torah in a year. And that reading schedule is the same everywhere for all Jews. So I don't care if you're in a synagogue this, 
yesterday, because it's Sabbath, in New York or Jerusalem or Moscow, you're hearing the same text. Also, this reading schedule predates Jesus. So, did Jesus pick this text or did the sovereign God of the universe orchestrate it so that this would be the text that would be read when Jesus came to his hometown? Either way, there are no coincidences with God. Now look at this. He opens the scroll and he speaks. The spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What text did Jesus just read from? Yeah, hopefully those who've been here this summer, yeah, that's Isaiah 61. Like, what a stupid question. Is there anything strange about this reading of Isaiah 61? Yes. Some of you see it. See, we have a problem here. The problem is that there are two clauses in the text that Jesus reads that are not in Isaiah 61. The clause, recovery of sight to the blind... And also the clause to release the oppressed. Now, there are some scholars that when they see this, just think, man, Jesus just butchered this thing. Or there are other scholars that think, well, Luke just took some liberty and recorded this thing wrongly. (laughs) Jesus is brilliant. He is absolutely brilliant. Because what you have to remember is that Jesus is teaching people who know their Bibles backwards and forwards. Most of them have the whole thing memorized, starting with Jesus. And everything Jesus says is rooted in the Old Testament. His teachings are always interpretations of Torah. So whenever I study something Jesus says in the New Testament, the first question I ask myself What text in the Old Testament right now is Jesus thinking of or doing commentary on? So I see set the oppressed free and recovery of the sight to the blind. Listen, you you don't have to be smart. Just Google it. You can just Google these clauses and it will take you right to the part in the Old Testament where these texts are. Release the oppressed is Isaiah 58 verse 6. Recovery of sight to the blind is Isaiah 42, verse 7. I just want to read that one right now. Because in Isaiah 42, verse 7, it says, To open the eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. And I want you to see what Jesus did. He just employed a common teaching technique of his day. Today it's called remez. Remez simply means hint. It's the art of bringing a well-known text or huge chunk of scripture into a message simply by hinting through a single word or a single clause or maybe a sentence. You're like, well, what do you mean by that? Well, I'll give you some modern-day examples If I say something like, may the force be with you. Okay, what comes to your mind? That single clause just brought in the whole body of Star Wars. Or if I said four score and seven years ago. Oh no, this is where we become really American, isn't it? (laughs) What is that? Gettysburg Address. All I have to say is that clause. The republic for which it stands. See, I don't have to say the whole thing. I can just say that little clause because these are the texts we know. The people in Jesus' day knew the text so well 
that a teacher with a single clause or even a single word could bring to mind a huge portion or chunk of the text. Paul's a master of this. In Romans, he says, the just shall live by faith. Where's that found in the Bible? Once in Genesis, also in Habakkuk. And I remember uh, studying with a guy at College Church. This pastor came in from Australia who was going through the book of, of Romans. And he said, you know what I just realized? As I've gotten three chapters in Romans, you can't understand Romans until you understand the book of Habakkuk. That's how they taught back then. See, Jesus is using Ramez all the time. Um, I'll show you just a couple of places where he does this. And I'm only doing this so that when you read your Bibles, you can start doing it yourself. But one is in uh, Matthew 21. And he has just cleansed the temple. And it says in verse 14 that the blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of Torah saw the wonderful things he did, and listen to this, and their children shouting in the temple courts, Hoshina to the son of David, they were indignant. And so they said to Jesus, do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus replied, yes. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants you have called forth praise? What's he quoting? That's Psalm 8. What did they hear him say? Not just this, but the next part that says, and you have ordained praise from your children to silence, to shut up the enemy. And they heard exactly what Jesus was saying. He just said, this is happening to shut us up. I'll give you another one. In, in, in Luke chapter 19, this is Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, by the way, is not a Greek Gentile name. Zacchaeus is a Hebrew name, but he's a tax collector. So Zacchaeus, Jesus says to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, I must come to your house today. And all the people who saw this began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a great sinner. And after Jesus encounters him, and Zacchaeus kind of surrenders his life to Christ. Jesus says to him, to, and not just to him, he's saying this to everybody. Today salvation has come to the house, to this house, because this man too is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Where's that found? See, Jesus' audience in that day would have heard exactly what Jesus was saying. That's coming right out of Ezekiel 34, where God says, Woe to you, shepherds. All you care about is yourself. And you fail to care for my flock. Therefore, I will become the shepherd, and I will seek to save the lost. And you hear what Zacchaeus is saying? He accepts me. I, too, am a child, a child of Abraham. And you hear what the Pharisees and the leaders heard? Woe to you guys. You blow it. Now, my favorite remez, I think, in all of Scripture is actually said by God himself on the day of Jesus' baptism where God thunders down, you are my son whom I love in whom I delight. Now, we read this and we think, oh, this is awesome because God is just saying, world, there's my son. Look at him. I love him. And while God is saying all that, he's saying so much more because when he says, this is my son, this is right out of Psalm 2, which describes God's coming king. When he says, the son in whom I delight, this is right out of Isaiah 42, the text we've also been looking at this morning, Isaiah 42, verse 1, this servant God's servant who's going to bring justice to the whole earth. And then whom I love, this is taken right out of Genesis 22 with Abraham taking Isaac to the altar. And see, if you know these texts and you hear God saying those texts upon Jesus, your heart just dances. That's awesome. And see, this is exactly what Jesus is doing now in Luke Chapter 4, 
He's pulling from Isaiah 42, Isaiah 58, and Isaiah 61. He puts all these things together, knowing that his audience knows the book, and then he gives his main point, and his main point is this, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So what did they hear Jesus say? They heard Jesus say, I'm the anointed one. I'm the long-awaited Messiah. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. He has messiahed me to be the Messiah. And my mission is so much more than to save a few souls and take them to heaven. My mission is jubilee. It's to set the slave free. It's to make the blind see. It's to preach gospel to the poor. It's to make all things new. All things, not just souls, but bodies. And not just a few people, but the whole earth. Please say yeah to that. And see, in Jesus' day, this was called the kingdom of heaven. And see, in their minds, the biblical precedent of the kingdom of heaven was the ministry of Elijah and Elisha, where they saw that the lepers were healed, and the blind were given sight, and the poor had good news preached to them, and the dead were raised to new life. The kingdom of heaven was unleashed, God's space entering our space to make all things new. And see, they knew Messiah would come, and what he would do is unleash the ministry, even that much more of Elijah and Elisha. He would unleash the kingdom of heaven. In fact, do you remember John the Baptist's question? It's kind of almost a depressing one that he asks of Jesus in Matthew 11. Are you the Christ? How does Jesus answer him? The blind see. The lame walk, the deaf hear, the lepers are cleansed, the dead are raised, the poor have good news preached to them. In other words, Jesus is using this language to say, yes, I am the Christ, and the kingdom of heaven is being unleashed. So listen to me. Whenever Jesus is present... Whenever the kingdom of God is breaking in, whenever God's spirit is being poured out, we will see the blind, the lame, the deaf, the lepers, the dead, and the poor being gathered by Jesus and Jesus making them whole. Do you see that? Are you experiencing it in your own life? See, if it's happening, it's going to be about so much more than getting some information. It's going to be transformation at the deepest levels. So let's ask this question. How did Jesus' hometown respond to Jesus' sermon? See, I always read this wrong, and I think every single one of us read this wrong. I think we all just kind of thought Jesus preached this. Today this is fulfilled in your hearing, and then all of a sudden they just said, kill him. They don't say kill him. Look at the text. It says they spoke well of him. They all spoke well of him. They all were amazed at his words. They loved it. Why? He's Joseph's son. He's one of us. We knew it. We knew Messiah would come from Nazareth. And you know what Jesus' takeaway from all this is? They don't get it. They don't understand the gospel. Why? 
I'll tell you why. They like his sermon. <laughs> Let me tell you something. The gospel is the most exciting and attractive thing in the world, but it is also the most offensive. And if you have never been offended deeply by the gospel, I'm going to tell you right now, you don't understand it. And see, what, what the Nazarenes didn't understand is who the gospel is for. I mean, they just automatically think it's for us. I mean, it's especially for us. I mean, we're Nazareth. We're God's special people. We're descendants of David. We're the good people. We're the ones who go to synagogue. We're the ones who pray. We're the ones who tithe. We're the ones who know God's word and with all our might strive to obey it. God's kingdom is for us. God's Messiah is for us. And see, Jesus just kind of boldly steps into this, and I see him with literally fire in his eyes. As he says to them, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd have me to do a miracle here? Like I did at Capernaum? And they say, yeah, 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 let's do that. And Jesus like, a miracle here? My gospel isn't for people like you. People who think they're good and they're in with God because they're descendants of Abraham or because of my parents or my grandparents. The gospel, says Jesus, is for the poor. And see, what Jesus does next is he defines the people, the kind of people that he's sent to. I mean, he defines the poor. Who are the poor? See, if we don't understand who the poor are, we're never going to understand Jesus. Because then in verses 25 and 27, Jesus gives two examples of who he sent to. The first is a Sidonian woman. I mean, talk about poor. I mean, if you know this story at all, this woman is so poor, she didn't even know where her next meal was coming from. But then there's Naaman. And if you know anything about Naaman, Naaman is this great military general. He's second in power. He's a celebrity. And what I find interesting about this example is that Naaman is materially and economically rich. So Jesus' definition of poor is already something other than socioeconomic status. So then we have to ask ourselves, what makes them poor, and why is Jesus sent to them? It's because Naaman and this widow are both poor in spirit. They are both spiritual outcasts. This widow is a Gentile. She's an idol worshiper. She's poor, and she's a woman in a male-dominated society. She has been cast down and cast out in every way imaginable. Naaman actually starts on top and on the inside. I mean, he's the ultimate insider, except for this. He develops a fatal flaw. Leprosy. And leprosy in that day was a disease that would destroy a person's vital organs and the skin, making that person utterly repulsive. Which is why lepers had to live in the desert in leper colonies. So this proud man, this great man, quickly becomes an outsider. He too is cast down and he's cast out. And what Jesus is saying through these examples is this. I am not sent to the good people. I'm not sent to those who think they're fine and good. I am sent to the poor, to the spiritual poor, to the desperate, to spiritual outcasts, those who know they have nothing of value to offer God. In fact, I think there's a very important word in verses 26 and 27. Because Jesus does not say, I come also for the poor. 
Look at that word only. I come only. Only for the poor. I come only for those who are spiritual, spiritually poor, who are, who are spiritual outcasts, who are utterly bankrupt before God. Jesus says, I'm only sent to them. Do you know this today? Has this offended you? Because it should. See, and it's it's when they hear this, now they say, kill him. Not because Jesus claims to be Messiah, but now they feel the offense of the gospel. Jesus says, I'm not sent to people like you, people who think they're okay, who think they're good, who, they, who think they deserve God in God's kingdom, who think they have something good to offer God. In fact, notice that Jesus gives us a rich person and a poor person as examples of the people he is sent to, but no middle class. Is this coincidence? I don't think it is because middle class, people like us, we, we, we have too much to ever think that we're poor, but we have too little to know the truth of Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities. Everything is meaningless, says the preacher, especially money. But you just look at us, and why is it that we're so enamored with our wealth? It's because money is more than just money. It's our life. It's our ticket to the top. It's our ticket in. And what it does is it produces this smug, self-sufficient, condescending attitude This attitude that says, I'm pretty good, my life is good, and therefore, I don't really need anything or anyone, I'm good. And all that I am, and all that I have, is because I worked hard for it. I earned it. I deserve it. God owes me. And see, that's a middle-class attitude. And this middle-class attitude spills right into our relationship with God. (laughs) I'm a good Christian. I belong to all the good people. My life is good. Everything I have with God is because (laughs) I worked hard for it. I earned it. I deserve it. God, you owe me. That's middle class. Let me ask you this question. Do you think God owes you anything right now? Do you? Do you think he owes you a good life? Do you think he owes you a spouse? Do you think he owes you a certain kind of house? certain kind of cars, certain kind of vacations? Do you think God owes you a certain level of safety and protection? If you think yes to any one of those things, you are middle class. Because being poor in spirit means I have nothing to offer God. And therefore, God owes me nothing And everything I have from God is a gift. It's a gift. I mean, that widow at Zarephath, Elijah comes to her and says, I need a meal. She just looks at him. I I have nothing. That's the Bible's definition of poor. When you can say, all I have is 
nothing. And to be spiritually poor is to say, all I offer to you, God, is nothing. And when we think we can offer him something, we're middle class. We're not coming to him poor. Or what about Naaman? I mean, here he's living this, this great life. Boom! Leprosy. Leprosy makes this great man desperate. And you know, he comes to Elisha, and I love what Elisha does. And he's, Elisha's completely in tune with the Spirit to be able to say this. He says, go strip and bathe seven times in the Jordan, and you will be made whole. And guess what? Naaman's offended. How dare you tell a great person like me to do something so low as to that? But God, in effect, is saying to Naaman, Naaman, if you come seeking my kingdom, you must be poor. And therefore, Naaman, I must strip you. I must strip you of your uniform. I must strip you of your titles. I must strip you of your medals. I must strip you of your prestige. I must strip you of everything, Naaman, but your leprosy. And you know what? Here's Naaman, this once proud general, and he's willing to humble himself, strip himself, show nothing but his leprosy, and go God's way. Because as Jesus says, unless you humble yourselves and become poor, you're never going to enter my kingdom. And see, Naaman, he went God's way, and the kingdom of God broke into this man's poverty. This widow went God's way, and the kingdom of heaven breaks into her poverty because this is God's way. Poverty is so at the heart of God. I mean, think about how God unleashes his gospel and his kingdom in our world. Look at verse 22. Isn't this Joseph's son? Think about that. A guy who was so poor that when he went to temple, all he could offer were two pigeons. Heaven's son, heaven's ultimate son, becomes Joseph's son. Jesus, the one who's on the very top, who's the ultimate insider, he was cast out, he was cast down, he went low, he imp- emptied himself of everything, he became poor. In fact, I'll show you something in Isaiah that I find incredibly cool. You might not think so, but I love this. When you read Isaiah closely, throughout this book, there's this promise of a rescuer who is to come. One who's going to come and make everything right. One who's going to come and unleash the kingdom of heaven, who's going to renew the earth, bring justice to the nations. And see, like all the other messianic texts in the Bible, this rescuer will be glorious and beautiful and a conquering Davidic king. But starting in Isaiah 42, suddenly a new figure appears in these prophecies. One who's so unlike the anointed, glorious, beautiful, conquering Davidic king. So much so that Isaiah simply calls him the servant. And starting in Isaiah 42, then in Isaiah 49, culminating in chapter 52 and 53, we see that the servant, instead of being beautiful and glorious, he will have no beauty about him. And instead of conquering, he's going to be the one who will be conquered. And this servant will have to suffer. He will be made weak. And instead of being this mighty lion of Judah, 
He's going to be led like a lamb to the slaughter. I want you to hear these texts because I want you to hear God's words instead of my words. Just close your eyes and listen to what God through Isaiah says about his servant. Here is my servant. This is Isaiah 42. Here is my servant who I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. And look at this conversation now that goes on between God and his servant. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of you by your hand. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people and a light to the Gentiles, to open the eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and release from dudgeon those who are in darkness. And it continues. Let me read from Isaiah 49. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. This is the servant. In my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. To me, he said, you are my servant. Israel, in whom I display my splendor. And he says, is it too small of a thing for you to be my servant? To restore the tribes of Jacob? To bring back those of Israel I have kept? I will make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. And kings will see you and they will stand up. And princes will see you and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel. He has chosen you. And then you get to Isaiah 52. And you look at how he's going to be a light to the nations. And he says, see My servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. And just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. And so he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouth because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. The servant, high, lifted up. And he'll be so marred and disfigured. And this all just goes right into Isaiah 53. Surely he took up our pain. He bore our suffering. We considered him punished by God, stricken by God, afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds. By his wounds, we are healed. My righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. And see this, this chunk of scripture called the servant or the suffering servant from Isaiah 42 through Isaiah 53. You see why Jesus inserts Isaiah 42 into his text? Because he's saying to them, I am that servant. And I came to unleash the kingdom of heaven not with a sword in my hands but nails in my hands. And he came only for the poor by making himself poor. As Paul says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that through his poverty you might become rich. The way God gave the gospel and his kingdom, it was through poverty. And the way we receive the gospel is through Poverty. He didn't come for middle class people. He came for poor. And how to offend us. Because this is the offensive nature of Jesus in his gospel. And it will always cause one of two extremes. Either you will pick up stones as a proud person, or you will fall at his feet as a poor person. 
Ask yourself today. Ask your heart. Stand before God and ask, have I gone God's way? Am I too proud to become poor? Am I too middle class? See, unless we see ourselves like this Sidonian widow, Lord, I have nothing, nothing. And unless we go the way of this Syrian general who emptied himself of everything but his leprosy, we will never know and experience the gospel of the kingdom of God. So I say to my heart, and I say to your heart, give up being middle class and become poor. And this morning we have two things for response. We have communion. Communion is for anyone this morning who wants to come to Jesus like this widow and eat as a poor person. Not even knowing where your next meal is going to come. The food that God offers us in Christ. And we also have mikvah. For people this morning who want to come to Jesus like Naaman. Who want to humble themselves of everything but their need and their leprosy. And want to be made clean. Let's pray. God, give us eyes to see and ears to hear both the beauty and the offense of the gospel. And God, I just pray for my own heart and I pray for every heart here today, Lord, that we would not only see the way, but like Naaman and this widow, we could go your way. That we'd be a church of people who are poor, who are desperate, who are hungry, 